One thing they don't tell you about mammies is that when they die you get new trousers. On my first full day as a half-orphan, I remember fiddling with unfamiliar chords as Margaret held my cheek and told me mammy was a flower. She and her husband Philly were close friends of my parents, and their presence is one of the few memories that survived from that period, most specifically the conversation Margaret had with me there and then. Sometimes, croaked Margaret, in a voice bent ragged from two days crying, when God sees a particularly pretty flower, he'll take it up from earth and put it in his own garden. Margaret held me in the sort of tight, worried grip usually reserved for heaving lambs up a ladder. As she clenched my hand and told me God had specially marked my mother for death, a tear-damp thumb traced small circles on my temple. She stroked my hair. It was nice to think that Mammy was so well-liked by God, since she was a massive fan. She went to all his gigs, mass, prayer groups, marriage guidance meetings, and had all the action figures, small infant of Prague statuettes, much larger infant of Prague statuettes, little blue plastic flasks of holy water in the shape of God's own mammy herself. So in one sense, Margaret's version of events was kind of comforting. It placed my mother's death in that category of stories where people meet their heroes, like Maureen Bavard getting a hug from Daniel O'Donnell in the Mount Dargal Hotel. Only mammy's death was even better, since Mrs Bavard didn't get to live outside Daniel's house forever thereafter, however much she would have liked to. As it happens, witnesses said Maureen cried so much she hyperventilated leaving a shining snail's trail of snot arching from Daniel's jumper to the floor. Thereafter, the sexy eunuch of Irish country music waves her to the medical tent, where she spent the remainder of the evening clutching an ice pack to blue curls and glazed mumbling bliss. As Margaret reassured me that God was an avaricious gardener, intent on murdering my loved ones any time he pleased, I concentrated once more on my new corduroy slacks, summoned from the ether as if issued by whichever government department administers to the needs of all the brave little boys with dead flowery mams. An infant grief action pack, stuffed with trousers, sensible underpants, cod liver oil tablets and a solar-powered calculator. The cords were new and clean and inordinately delightful to fiddle with, most especially when I flicked my finger up and down their pleasing grooves, stopping only each time a superheated nail forced a change of hands. I think it's fair to say I had no idea what was going on, save that this was all very sad and worse, making Margaret sad. In that way of five-year-olds, I feared sadness and adult above all things. So I leaned my head upon Margaret's shoulder to reassure that her words had scrubbed things clean. In truth, I found the flower story unsettling. I couldn't help picturing Mammy, lovely, tired and blue-tinged in her flowy white hospital gown, awakening to a frenzy of mechanical beeping as the roof caved in and tubes burst from machines. God takes the most beautiful ones for himself, she repeated in a tired rasp as I envisaged the room pelted from above by ceiling plaster, maybe an oncologist or two getting knocked out by falling smoke alarms. God's two great probing fingers smashing through the roof to relocate Mammy to that odd garden he kept in heaven, presumably so he'd have something to do on Sundays. In fact, my mother died from the breast cancer that had spun a cruel mocking thread through her life for four years. The hospital rang my father at 3am on Thursday 17th of October 1991. Their exact words went unrecorded, but the general gist was that he'd want to get there quick. I can't imagine the horror of that morning. My father racing dawn, chain-smoking as he managed the 90-minute drive from Derry to Belfast in less than an hour. When he arrived, she had already passed. She already was dead, and my father drove back to Derry as the sole parent of 11 children. From certain angles, the circumstances of my upbringing are disarmingly broke. I agree, for example, that the whole 11 kids thing is a bit much. 
My parents' remarkable fecundity had long been something of a cause celeb to friends or indeed any random person who could count past ten or it had passed our scraggly-haired forms in the big white minibus in which we drove around. Nicknamed with some inevitability the O'Reilly Mobile, this vehicle cemented our place as an oddity wherever we went. And while I'm not saying everyone we knew mocked us as a gaggle of freaks, I'd find it hard to understand if they didn't. Passing us on the road during the school run, you would have seen a mildly frazzled man at the wheel, muttering traffic through a woolly fog of cigar smoke. This man, resplendent in a two-toned suit and with beautifully combed blonde hair, is my father, Joe, or Daddy, as Northern Irish speech has it. Daddy was, for reasons that will become obvious, the bright, shining star of my childhood, and quite possibly human life on earth during this period. His hypothetical tension behind the wheel on this entirely notional morning might have been the result of one of us forgetting to put on shoes, neglecting to go to the toilet, or ingeniously weaponising a nosebleed against their nearest sibling. 